that we share is something that's appealing that you'll look at and say, how do I how do I how do I become a part of that? And so, as Dorothea said, we see part of the struggle and in much of my counseling when I talk to Christians is they don't see themselves as God sees them. They see themselves as the world sees them. And it's so important for us to, and we're going to look at this in 1 John 5 in just a moment, a little bit of this too, how we need to look at God as he sees us and then respond to that. I want to give you some encouragement. There's light at the end of the tunnel. 1 John chapter 5. This is the last chapter in this short book. And we're entering it today. And I, and I have no idea. Uh, how long will be it will take? I, mean, I struggled mightily with this text this week, and we're looking at the first five verses, or introducing at least introducing the first five verses as we come into this. It's, as I've looked at First John, it's been probably the most rewarding study I've gone through, and yet one of the most difficult studies I've ever had. At the same time, I'm reminded of one uh, writer in the early part of the 20th century. By the name of Arthur Pink, he had written a, uh, a huge volume, over about 1,100-page volume on the Gospel of John. 
And at the end of that, friends came to him and said, hey, uh, why don't you write on First John? Just like after I finished John, people said, why don't you preach on First John? And his response was, it is so deep. It is so, uh, he said, I'm not prepared to go into that letter. As small as it is, as simple as it is, so deep, I'm not prepared. It took him 25 years for him to get to the point after writing his commentary on first on John to get into first John. I don't have that much time, so I decided to just jump in and see and see what happens. I've been challenged by this letter. I've seen the gospel in its glory in such a manner that I've often said, you know, the gospel is so good. The, the, the news that we share is such good news that it's hard to believe. And as we really look at the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it really is hard to believe. Three keys have helped me, and I came up with these on my own. This is not something I read. This is, as I studied it, three things jumped out, three keys that's helped me. And I'm sharing these with you once again. If you've been with us, you've heard these before. But I'm sharing with you because as you read this little letter, I think if you, if you remember these three keys, it'll help you in, in the study of, uh, of First John. And I keep, I keep going back to them because as I read and study, it just, it, uh, sometimes I forget and this helps me. The first key is to remember John's purpose in writing. John states his purpose. His purpose is three different purposes. And if you read commentaries, they, they m- many, many times will say, uh, John is writing to combat Gnosticism. And then you get into what that is, and it's really cumbersome, and it's, it's difficult. And it, I don't think that was the reason, because he tells us why he wrote it. And you remember these. If you've been with us and you've listened, you remember. The first one is that so that you will have joy, great joy, overflowing joy. Chapter one, verse four, he says, I write this so that you will have joy and have it to the full. And then number two, in chapter two, verse one, he says, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. And we're not there yet, but we're getting there. Five, verse 13, so that you will know that you have eternal life. And so as I read through this. I keep going back and saying, if, if I don't receive joy from what I'm reading, or if I read something that says, oh, this gives me an excuse to sin, or if I doubt my eternal life as I read this, I have to remember, John didn't write it for that. I'm misreading this passage, so I go back and study it based on these three things. The second key is that it's a God-centered message. And we're often tempted to center the gospel on ourselves. What I do and what I don't do. And so when I come to a difficult passage, it's easy. I mean, it's just almost automatic for me to start focusing on myself and losing heart. And I have to remember this message centers around God and Christ and what they did and not around what I have done. Let me just give you a quick example. If you're my I I glanced down uh, this morning to as I was reviewing in chapter five, verse one. But if I go up to chapter four, verse four. Uh, as an example where it says, you, dear ch- children, are, for, or are from God and have overcome them. And what I mean by becoming self-centered, when I read that first pa- uh, passage, my temptation is to say, but I'm not a dear child of God. Sometimes I'm a rebellious child. You are from God. Am I really from God? Am I really from God? 
Have I overcome them? Have I really overcome? And later on, we're in this passage we're looking at, we've overcome the world. Have I really overcome? And you see how we quickly look at ourselves and we see, uh, but am I this way? Am I, uh, am, am I an overcomer? And we begin to doubt ourselves because we're looking at ourselves. But read on. Because he, he then says, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And that makes you Christ-centered again. He says, you are his child from God and you have overcome them, not because you're so great. Not because you do everything so perfect. Not because you live a sinless life, but because of God in you. That's why you're his child. That's why you're from God. That's why you've overcome the world. And the passage is just over and over. We see this God-centered uh, focus in, in our lives. And, of course, it doesn't mean you don't do anything. Of course, we, we look at that and say, well, I don't do anything. I just sit here and let God do it for me. No, that's not true. It means that what you do is a response to what already is done, has been done in your life. You don't perform to get God to respond. You don't do stuff so that God will respond to you. you it's the other way around. You are responding to God's love. When, he, when you see what he's done, you respond to that. So you do things and you don't do things. But it's not based on I'm trying to get God to love me. It's because God does love me. That's why I respond this way. And again, it goes back to what Dorothea says. We have to see ourselves through God's eyes. And the third key that's helped me in the study is to see John's expand, what I'm calling expansion. He it's circular in the way he he uh, he delivers this lesson. He repeats himself for those who are used to linear logic. You know, point one, A, B, point two, A, B, that kind of thing. Something that, that seems like Paul was, he fought along that line or wrote along that line. It, this becomes difficult. And so we see multiple times, and we're going to see it in this lesson today, where he uses certain words over and over. Uh, and as you read through First John over and over, they come to, to light. Uh, he, certain thoughts, certain phrases jump out as you read it over and over because he, re he repeats these things many times. But the main themes, the three main themes that John repeats uh, throughout this book are belief, love, and, obe and, and obedience. And we're going to see it clearly in this passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is the this is this is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burn, burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Let me take a quick time out. I wanted to say hi to someone on on the live stream. And, and that's an announcement at the same time. My daughter, her husband and three children moved to Eugene, Oregon yesterday. <laughs> and they're supposed to be on the live stream now. So I'm thankful that, that they're there. A lot of people are like what they moved. Yes. My daughter and son-in-law took my grandkids away. And so and so um, they're on the, about as far away as you can get and still be in the continental U U.S.
But they moved in uh, yesterday, got a great job offer, wonderful job offer as a nurse practitioner out in Eugene. And so um, and so that's where they are. And I wanted to say welcome to Central finally. So we're glad that you're with us today. Anyway, as we read this passage, I found this difficult. This is a difficult passage to me. And so I read it over and over and read in context. I read chapter four and chapter five. And, and I keep asking myself, what, what is he saying here? And I found that if I just stepped back from it and looked at the broader view, then I thought, oh, that's what John is trying to say. And it, it helped the light come on in my mind. The part of the difficulty is this, this phrase, born of God, born of God. Because even though in the religious world we use that, born in you, born again, born of God, uh, and we, we, we use it in such a way that it's almost something that just comes out of our mouths with no, with no thought, at least for me. And four times this word is used. You don't see it in the English very well, but it's used four times in these five verses. And it's translated different ways in your different translations. And I know some of you have the, the smartphones that you can see multiple translations. And you'll see it translated born of God or born, father in the NIV here, begot, begotten, engendered. And these words, this word means both the beginning of a child's existence, the begetting, the conception. But it also means the later birth, the actual birth time. So it can mean both. And so I'm trying to figure this out. And as I read other writers, they, they uh, some try to make a big deal over the difference between begetting, begotting. How do you say that? To be <laughs> begat, begot, whatever. <laughs> uh, and and born or born in you. And so I was sitting there thinking, well, is that what in the world is, is being said here? Is that John's point? What is John trying to say in the context of the book? Is he trying to make some kind of theological point, as some writers do, of a person being begotten uh, or uh, the d- difference between that and being born, or the actual birth? And I thought, you know, John isn't doing that. He's trying to be very practical. He's trying to give us some practical things and not this high th- theology. He's speaking about a relationship here between belief, obedience, and love. He's been speaking about this all throughout the four, the four previous chapters. So he's pulling them all together here, and he's talking about this relationship between these three uh, things. He describes this person who believes, who obeys, who loves. He says, this is a born-of-God person. Or if you want to use the word, a begotten person. A person who loves, who obeys, and who has faith. To simplify it, we could say this person is in God's family. That just made it simple for me. A born of God person is a person in God's family. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be in God's family? And I got thinking about this also. I'm reading throughout uh, the text here. And what he's talking about here is a family likeness, a family likeness. Look at that. Isn't that a great picture? That's my Michael standing in the front. Does he look like that little boy in the picture behind him? Yes, no. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. You know who that little boy is? That's me. <laughs> A generation. And I thought about taking pictures of all my grandkids and saying, look at the likeness and all this stuff. But, you know, we can see that often. We'll say, and, and that happens. You know, Michael, he looks just like you. All right. We see this family likeness. There's a genetic passing on of familyness. 
characteristics that are evident from one generation to the next. You know it in your own family. People look at you and say, oh, that's your son. That's your daughter. They see it just by the way they act, by the way they sound. Some some of the things I mean, I've heard a voicemail from Matthew and I thought it was me. All right. Uh, His voice sounded. Of course, it doesn't sound like when we're talking because you hear yourself in your own ears and it doesn't sound like that. But over the voicemail, when did I when did I leave that voicemail? Oh, that's Matthew. It's not me. And we see it in voice. We see it in laughter. We see it even in disposition. People who may just be kind of, you know, melancholy or or happy. Those characteristics seem to pass from generation to generation, optimism or pessimism or or so on. And this is what what John is saying here. There's a God's nature is passed on to you. When a person is born of God, he takes on God's nature. And this is not theology. This is not philosophy. This is real. John says this really happens. Look at your life. Begin examining your life and you will see that this is not just theory here. This is reality. Second Peter, chapter one, verse four says we participate in God's divine nature. These are not just flowery words, even though it's a beautiful passage. If you read it, it sounds pretty, but he's talking about reality here. You actually participate in God's nature. Being born or being begotten of God alludes to this spiritual passing on, we would say in our language today, God's DNA to us. And let me just read some passage. If you go back to chapter three, verse nine, um, I'm going to be flipping back and forth through first John today. And so I have to find my little numbers here where he says, no one, excuse me, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And so he says here that God's seed remains in him. And this is very graphic. And I hope this doesn't embarrass anyone. But the but the word there, God's seed is sperma in Greek. That's what it is. And he's saying God's spiritual genetic material is in you. This is what actually is taking place. And so when I paraphrase this, I said the very DNA of God exists in you. Chapter four, verse seven, he says there, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is something that's born of God took place in the past, but presently it has its effect. Just like when you were born so many years ago, the genetic material that was passed on to you has its present effect in your life. And so I I translate this, the bloodline of God, the bloodline of God is in you. And so you were born of God at one time in your life when you became a Christian, you were begotten of God. And now his blood is in you, the blood of Christ, the bloodline is in you. His genetic material is in you. The family likeness that we have from God is wrapped up, John says, in three different areas. How do I look like God? How does Michael look like me? Well, his eyes look like me. His mouth looks like me. Okay. How do I look like God? And John says it's this way. These three things. Faith, obedience, and love. When you see those three characteristics in your life, to whatever degree, you have God's genetic material in you. Let's look at each one of those. Belief. 
in verse one, he says, everyone who believes in verse four, he talks about our faith in verse five. He says he who believes. And so he's talking about belief here. And he introduces from the very beginning a warning against unbelief. That's how he begins it. Chapter two, verses um, 18 through 27. He speaks against denying Jesus as, as Christ. And he says, if you deny Jesus as the Christ, you're denying God as father. They, they go together. You cannot you cannot separate them. Um, and so this deny is the opposite of faith that he's that he's saying here. As he goes in a chapter, uh, and we're not going to read these, so just they're too long. But let me just point them out to you. Chapter two, verses eighteen uh, through twenty-seven. Again, we're seeing this expansion. John introduces it here; he expands it in chapter three. He continues to expand this here. At this point, one thing that jumped out at me in chapter five is uh, what I'm calling a bookend. There's a bookend, and I found this neat little illustration: A to Z. Alpha to Omega. All right. Here's Alpha and Omega. Chapter five, verse one, he says, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that's really important. And we're not going to go into detail right now. But then in verse five, he says that he is the son of God. And he he ties belief into both of these. You have to believe that he's the Christ and you have to believe that he's the son of God. If you back up to chapter four, verses uh, one through six. He combines the positive acknowledgement that Jesus is a Christ as the one who knows God and a negative statement that those who do not acknowledge him are not from God. In other words, if you acknowledge him in your faith, you are from God. And if you say, no, I, I deny that, then you're not from God. You're not born of God. And so here, and let me just read verses two and three very quickly to show this. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. How can I recognize the spirit of God in my life? Every spirit. That acknowledges, that confesses, that says, yes, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Now, what is this belief? What, what, what's this, this concept of faith or belief? Years ago, and I just heard this, I did not read this, a popular writer wrote something like this. Whoever calls God father is my brother too. And I don't know the context of that statement. I don't know what he was trying to say. I, I never read the book. I never read the chapter or whatever it was. But I, someone came up to me and asked me what I thought of, thought of that. But taken out of that, uh, whatever context it's in, taken by itself, it's full of problems. It sounds good. It sounds loving. It sounds tolerant. But it can be very dangerous. It can be fa- And it can be false. Everyone who calls God Father is my brother, too. And yet, when I read this, and I don't know how many times I read chapter five, uh, the first five verses this week, we become very uncomfortable with what John is saying, too. He makes two unqualified statements here. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then he says, and who overcomes? He says, he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And I'm not sure about you, but my first thought is where is repentance in that? He doesn't say anything about repentance. He doesn't say anything about baptism there. And so this this statement of saying, listen, whoever says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I think some of us and I'm putting myself there have a little bit of hmm, well. Just if you say you believe you're you're born of God. 
And the problem, I think, is that we don't understand or we forget what the Bible says and what John says about the word believe. What does that word believe mean? And again, we see John's what really a unifying factor here in what John is doing. He takes the word believe and he ties that in with obedience and love. You cannot believe and not obey. You cannot believe and not love. If love is absent, if obedience is absent from your life, then you really don't believe. And that's what he's saying here. He combines it very clearly to me in these, these first five verses. Belief, faith is not just up here in your brain. It's not saying, oh, yeah, I believe. We, we, I think at least my culture, culturally, a lot of times we think belief is just say, oh, yeah, I believe. It's just a statement. Uh, we've, we've looked at some evidence. We've, we've studied some evidence and we said, you know, based on what I see here, based on the evidence, I believe that, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, he's the Christ. And yet that's not faith. Many years ago, I was studying with a, uh, a Chinese gentleman. He said he was an atheist. I think he was closer to an agnostic than an atheist. But he grew up in a, a home that did not believe in God. And I got to know him and became friends. And I said, hey, would you like to read the Gospel of John together and just see what one man says about Jesus? And he said, I don't believe that's scripture. I don't believe that's from God. And I said, no, no. I said, as history. All I'm saying is, here's a man who says he knew Jesus and he wrote some stuff about him. Would you like to read that together? He said, sure. I think we got to about the sixth chapter. And about that time, he said, and I'm not talking about one reading. I'm talking about over a period of months. We studied it through. We, you know me. We went slowly through the book of John. <laughs> That's where I learned how to do it. We went slowly through it. And several months later, he says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. But he had no faith. He believed it here. He saw the evidence. He said, I can't argue against that. I just can't. It's just it's there. I can't argue against the facts. It was up in his brain. But when to make a a faith response to that, to put action in there, he just said, no, I'm, I'm not ready for that. I, I can't do that. And so we see this difference between faith and um, and mental assent or belief in this way. It begins there. That's where. Faith begins. You have to look at the facts and say, okay, what do the facts say? Faith isn't just, a lot of people think faith is just kind of closing your eyes and jumping off into the deep end. It's not that. It's not saying I want to believe in God, so I'm going to believe in God no matter, even though there's evidence against it, I'm going to believe because I want to believe. It's not that. All right. It's not, that's not faith. Faith is looking at the evidence and saying, based on this evidence, I believe and I will respond to it. I'm going to take some action from this. It's taking God at his word. It's acting on it. It's, in John's words here, obeying what he says. And the primary command that God, that John gives us is love. If you really want to show your faith, love others. Love your brothers and sisters. And he's talking to faithful, he's talking to Christians here. Or that's what the, who the letter was written to. And so when he writes to Christians, it's, it's normal for him to say, now listen, Christians, this is how you respond in faith. This is how your faith is shown by love. Let's look at that quickly. 
We've said a lot about love in uh, in the last few weeks, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But again, we see John's expansion here as in his way of teaching. He began in chapter two, writing on this important subject. We need to rem- remember this is not an emotion. Did you get that last week? Love is not an emotion. It's a choice. All right. We have to remember that. Uh, in our society, love is an emotion. In, in biblical John writing here, Bible writing, love is not an emotion primarily. It, emotions can come, but it's not an emotion. It's a choice. I'm choosing something. And the thing that helped me a lot is to say it's a choice to value what God values. If God values something, what James was really speaking about, if God values eternal life, I value eternal life. If God values a person, I value a person. And that's what love is. Chapter two, verses seven through 11. He begins to introduce this. Uh, He introduces the necessity of love for brothers and sisters. I just want to read verse 10 uh, where he says, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing uh, in him to make him stumble. Let's uh, uh, put that word value. Whoever values or esteems his brother lives in the light. And so we remove that emotion from it and we say, I value, I esteem you. I look at you as God looks at you. And when I do that, there's nothing to make me stumble. He goes on and says, this message of love is rooted in the gospel. Chapter three. Verses 11 through 18, he spends that time there. And let's just read verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. This is the gospel you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should esteem one another. This is what we are to do with each other. We are to value one another. And then in chapter 4, where we spent several weeks, the source of love is from God, for God is love. 7 through 21. Again, he's expanding this. Uh, verse seven, chapter seven, uh, four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Dear friends, let us esteem one another. Let us value one another. Why? For value comes from God. God determines value. That's what he's saying here. And then chapter in verse 16 there, God is love. That leads us to obedience. The third characteristic of God. God, God's characteristics is faith, trust. God char- uh, characteristic of God is uh, is love clearly stated here. And then third is obedience. The things that we receive from God. Jesus said it this way in the gospel of John, at least three different times. He said, I only do what my father has shown me. I only do what he said. I only say what he said. I, I'm telling you what God told me. And so our big brother, our older brother, the son of God, we listen to him. We see him and we have the same kind of characteristics. This is what we want to do. We want to obey. We want to do what God wants us to do. And it's natural for us to do this. This is part of our family likeness. The opposite, the rebellious nature, that's from the old family. That's from the rebellious family. And we've left that. We've been born anew. We're in a new family now. And this is how we how we take after God. Look at verse two of chapter five. This is how we know. This is how we know that we love the children of God. How? By loving God and carrying out his commands. We do what he says. And we kind of bristle when we, and I think it's our American nature to not want to do as others have told us. There's, and that's kind of grown in our society in recent years. You know, a policeman stops you and we talk back. You know, that's kind of the nature of, of our society these days. 
And it shouldn't be that way. We're not talking about military obedience. We're not talking about doing something we'd rather not do. God's commands. Later on, he says they're not burdensome. God's commands aren't a heavy burden to us. The word here means to treasure, to hold in the highest esteem, to value. You could say to love is tied in with love, to love his commands. Over in Psalms 119, verse 97, he says, oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. Why do you why does the psalmist love God's law? It's not the rules and regulations, but he tells you, verse 98, your commands make me wiser than my enemies. That's why I love it, because I get smarter. I become wiser when I follow your commands. I have more insight than all my teachers. The next verse, verse 99. That's why I love your law, because when I meditate on it, when I think about it, I surpass my teachers. I have more understanding than the elders. Well, we're not going to go there, are we? It's the scriptures, okay? <laughs> but when we meditate on the scriptures, we can have more understanding, more insight than the older people. Than, what does it say? The preacher. Verse 101. I have kept my feet from every evil path. Barry mentioned that. That's why I love your law. Because it keeps me out of trouble. You know, when I don't meditate on your law, I get in trouble. But the, his word keeps me from every evil path. I have not departed from your laws. For yourself, how sweet are your words to my taste, it's sweeter than the honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. And that's why we love God's law, because we that's why we obey it. That's why we value it, because it gives us that and much more. It's not just rules and regulations that we have to obey because, you know, the captain told us to do it. And I'm the sergeant. It's because God knows what's best in our life. And we follow what he what he says. John has spoken about this obedience throughout the letter. Chapter 2, again, this expansion. Chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 6. Where is First John? It's in my Bible here somewhere. There you go. Let me read just verse 3 here. Chapter 2, verse 3. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. This is where he introduced it here. And then in chapter, the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 10, he expands on it some more, this obedience. And he says in verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And the opposite is true. Who does who loves his brother and who does what is right? Well, he's he's born of God. You know, as we think of these three great characteristics, we have to be convicted. I was convicted. I thought about faith, obedience and love. And I thought, well, how can I really, truly believe? How can I real how, how can I love like I should? How do I obey? You know, sometimes I really am not as obedient as I should be. And do you see what I've done? I've driven myself inward once again. It's a me centered gospel. What do I need to do to obey better? What do I need to do to love better? What do I need to do for faith? It should drive us Godward, not inward. God-centered, not me-centered. And God's Word does that. John points this out in chapter 5. He says, you are born of God. It's not really clear 
in that little translation. But literally what it says, he says, you are born out of God. God is the source of your faith. God is the source of love. God is the source of obedience. And that's how I focus on him. He's the one that gives me that. How exactly? I don't know. I don't know exactly how he does it. But it's faith born out of God as a source and origin. It's love that is born of God. It is obedience that is born of God in my life. It's not the power of my faith that saves. It's the power of his faithfulness that saves. And if you start, if you focus on your faith and how your faith saves and you're focused on the wrong thing, it's his faithfulness that saves. And as a result of his faithfulness, I express that in faith. He's the source of my love. I can only love. I can only value when I learn how to when I learn God's value and what he values. In the late 1800s, early 1800s, really. There's a man named John Patton. He moved to the New Hebrides Islands. That's a thousand miles west of the Fiji Islands. Cannibal Islands. Many missionaries, both local island missionaries and, and foreign missionaries, were killed and eaten by the people there. His life was often in danger. The first year that he was there, he lost his wife and his child in childbirth. And he struggled. He ran for his life on several occasions, but he stayed there for about 40 years. And he was translating the scriptures into the native language. And he was having difficulty finding this, a, a word to use for the word faith or trust. They just didn't have it. They didn't have it in their language. And as he was trying to come up with some kind of word to explain this biblical, important word, a man ran into his hut. And flopped down into a, a chair. He was tired. He was exhausted. And he said, it's so good to rest my whole weight in this chair. And John goes, that's it. Rest my whole weight. That's how he translated the word faith. Just to rest our whole weight in what God says. God calls us to do that. We can't love like we're supposed to. Rest in God. Put your whole weight in him. Just do it. Just do what he's calling you to do, relying on him. Oh, you're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it like you should, but rest in him. You know, I can't obey as I want to. Oh, I want to obey. I have that desire. Rest in him. He will give you the strength, the power to obey. You know, I can't even believe like I should. I wish I had greater faith. I wish I believed better. I wish I trusted better. So I just lean on him. Just fall back into his arms and say, okay, God, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Jude, verse 24, really sums it up in a beautiful way. I love this verse. To him, to him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that beautiful? Resting on him, leaning on him. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy. God presents you to himself. He gives a present to himself. He buys a present with the with the blood of his son. 
he bought a present for himself and it was you. And he made you without fault and he did it with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. If you are struggling with your faith, God bless you. And I mean that literally. And that's a great place to be. Struggle with it. Don't give up.